So welcome to the Good People Podcast, where each episode we explore what it means to be good by talking to everyday heroes, philanthropists, altruists, and do-gooders. I'm Kelsey Timmerman, author of Where Am I Giving? A Global Venture. Uh, I, glo- I can't even say my own name, my own book, Jay. So I don't. I, I actually don't even know the subtitle of my own book. I have to read it. So that's not. Did you write it? You I wrote did, it, right? I did write it, but the subtitle is A Global Adventure, Exploring How to Use Your Gifts and Talents to Make a Difference. Are you fully using your gifts and talents to make a difference, Jay? No, no, nope. oh, wow. not fully. Is that because you're so talented and so gifted that it's just hard to? <laughs> yeah, there's, yeah, that's it. There's just so many. I can't get through all of them, right? I've used 42 today. I got to get to the other 60. Wow. And that's early. Yeah. Oh, so Jay, yeah. I've missed you. No kidding. It's been we a while. Uh, we haven't done much together or been on mic together for a month. No, I, I we went trick or treating at your house, and then I saw you at a, a birthday party of some mutual friends, and um, and I think it had been probably a month, maybe it had been yep. a while. So well, I've been uh, we traveling. Both- you're always traveling. I've been traveling. You've been traveling. Yeah. You're always traveling and I was traveling. So we need to get this together because I'm about to have a lot of traveling in my future, which yeah. we'll get into in the, in the next episode. But uh, it's just good to be back here with all of our, our warm, uh, good people, listeners, and, and you. Right. <laughs> good. I'm glad. As warm listeners, I don't know if that even works. But uh, I don't know if they're so today warm. we're going to talk about something a little bit uh, less warm. I don't know if it's less warm or not. But um, corporate social responsibility, right up your alley, Jay. Yeah, that um, that's a really loaded term, uh, and it's getting uh, constantly getting headlines for lots of different reasons. Yeah, yesterday I know Kelsey, you and I were at this birthday party doing our doing our uh, step away from the crowd conversations. And we started talking about, uh, started talking about this subject and talking about um, the Boeing um, Senate hearing, which was um, pretty compelling for those who haven't heard it. If you listen to the podcast, the daily, um, if you go in that and listen to uh, the story there, it is, it's fairly compelling stuff. Um, Put your shoes in the families um, who lost people on the two, down jets um, or in the shoes of the CEO and board that has made those poor decisions. It's just a harrowing, depressing, sad uh, situation, but it did bring up this topic for both of us, right, Kelsey? So yeah. where, where does it stand and what's your role in it as a, as a business person? Yeah. So Jay, can you, I, I think every, all of us could has probably had someone that we've, we've lost or someone who's, traveled somewhere and we could imagine if you know they never made it to their destination like that's i think it's easier to be in the shoes of the families maybe in terms of us imagining but can you help us imagine like what it would be like to be in the shoes of that corporate executive i can't remember his name but the ceo yeah the ceo of boeing i don't remember it either um like, so what, what, are, for him. what are kind of like his like obligations and what do you feel like is going through his head or what is his duty there? Yeah. Well, a CEO has, has a number of roles. Um, and of course, you know, they're responsible for the, you know, the, the, the financial, um, ethics of a company. They're responsible for the strategy of a company. Uh, unfortunately for a company like his, he's also responsible for 
shareholder value and the stock price. Um, so companies like Boeing, you know, unlike smaller companies that are under the billion dollars mark, right? Which I don't know what their, their yearly annual revenue or their yearly revenue is, but, um, it's monstrous, right? So when they make a decision, they make hundreds of billions of dollars in each decision. So you go, hey, we're going to build a new jet and we're going to build however many there were, 130 of them. That is a massive, massive decision. It's also um, very much part of his responsibility to continue to sell product and to grow the, grow the company. The other part of his responsibility, because he isn't a company that can deal out life and death, um, he has responsibility for quality, he has responsibility for the process of quality and, and how that is followed. So that's cultural, that's, um, you know, that's physical. If you, I've been to the Boeing factory and you watch them put those planes together. Um, it is leadership. So you've got to put the right people in place to ensure that, you know, if something's amiss, that somebody can manage it and bring it up. Um, and, and then also, in, in a complex way, the company is monstrous, right? You've got, you've got people 30 management layers down putting bolts in that hold a wing to a plane all the way to the CFO who is making sure that your finances are represented correctly. So he's also depending on a very complex system to give him good information and his responsibility is to make sure all that works. And in this circumstance, he failed big time. Mm -hmm. And I, I think what, what the hearing brought up, and you, you listened to it, um, what the hearing brought up was that people warned him, people gave information, people said, hey, there's a problem, and he kept going. Yeah, like the exact problem. So what problem. was your impression of that? Yeah, I mean, so they, they described exactly what likely happened or what would likely happen, and um, it was that a warning would go off and people would have the pilots would have like 10 seconds to appropriately respond to this warning. And if they didn't, it would put the plane in like a, um, a nosedive that you couldn't get out of. And, and so they right. knew that before the first plane went down that this was, it was happening in the, the flight simulations. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't, it's just unfathomable that they would, continue to move forward with it. I don't know if in their heads they thought maybe they could fix it as they were going later. Um, but I mean, it's yeah, two, it's, two planes crashed, like hundreds of people yeah, it's, died. Yeah. They didn't stop it after one. They stopped it after two. Um, and even then they were a little reluctant. And to me, I mean, I, I'm speculating because I don't know what was in his head or the conversations they had at the board level. I'm sure a lot of that's going to come up in the legal proceedings, but you know, for him um, calling a halt to the entire process and freezing the delivery and usage of those planes, I would imagine would have stopped a massive payment from Southwest and all the companies that were buying them. Yep. It, would be a, it would be a public embarrassment and a hit to their bottom line. Their stock price would go down. People would have reacted to it and say something was screwed up that they delayed this thing. Now, who knows? Maybe that plane's release was already delayed a year or two. Who knows? Yeah. Um, I know how that works sometimes. But it would have been, it would have brought a lot of problems to him had he said, hey, we got to delay this because mm -hmm. of some speculation that, yeah, that's a, there's a single point of failure. It's possible the sensor could go. 
but some of my engineers are saying it's not a big deal. Other ones are saying it's a big deal. We're just going to, we're going to move forward and try to figure it out because I don't want to deal with all the problems of the stock going down and shareholders asking me why we didn't release the planes and lack of delivery dates to Southwest or whoever. And they may have had penalties on there saying we got to have these planes by a certain date. But we all know the net of that, the outcome of that was worse, right? Mm-hmm. He, he, he took a risk and he lost it. He, he, he guessed the wrong way. So the question is, as a CEO with ethics um, as the forefront, were you, was your responsibility to the shareholders or was it to the people that ride your planes? Yeah, there's definitely pressure from the shareholders. I remember a previous episode of The Daily had talked about Boeing it was probably a year ago. I remember listening to a mowing yard. So I think it might've been last, last summer. Um, and it talked about a, it was a, from followed a guy who had been years at Boeing. who was on like the manager of the factory or a part of the line of the factory. And he was not happy with the quality that was ha- the, the pressures that were being put on them, like kind of the quality fade that was happening. So it does seem to be maybe like a lack of overall leadership or increased pressure or cost cutting that cut quality. Um, so I, I, so I have another question. Um, when it comes to this guy talking in front of Congress, is he a person or is he the voice of an entity? Cause there's this thought in our society now and it's almost been legalized through citizens United that, a corporation is a, a, a person that has rights of free speech, but the voice of that corporation is, was, is that the CEO? Was he him or was he the voice of this? It's a hundred billion dollar a year company. I, I just Googled it. Or is he the, is he that voice? Yeah, that that's, I don't know. I didn't listen to the beginning, how he was sworn in, how it was put together. Um, I know sometimes depositions for corporations are done where um, you're not an individual, you're there to represent the corporation. And generally, if you're an officer, what's called an officer of a corporation, you're legally bound to the corporation, you're legally bound as the corporation. So you have to prepare a greater picture instead of saying a greater knowledge of the full picture, instead of saying, I wasn't personally involved with that. I didn't have anything to do with that. I never saw that. That was not my department. You can't say those things. They will say, well, what happened in quality? And you have to make sure you have an idea of what happened in quality. So I don't know how he was sworn in. Mm. Of course, some of this was Senate testimony rather than a court case. It's hard to know. But um, his responsibility to understand the bigger picture um, is important. If it had been a court deposition, some attorney might correct me here, but he would have a greater responsibility based on his role to have full information or or be brought up on contempt for not sharing information that he has. Yeah, so it sounds like he was probably sweating the most he's ever been sweating his entire life sitting in that chair. And it's probably not going to get any easier for him as as things. Not, no. to, not to feel sorry for him, because obviously his company made decisions that have drastically changed the lives of of probably thousands of people who've who've lost a loved one or a friend. So there's, it seems like the minimum corporate responsibility is to don't kill people who use your product. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because um, I know there are probably people listening and, and I'm included in this. There are ramifications to the decisions I make. Nobody dies. Yeah. 
uh, which is much more comfortable position for me because if I were him, uh, when I finish all these legal proceedings, I would probably uh, uh, buy a house out in uh, Idaho somewhere, a thousand miles from everybody else and never leave it again because yeah. uh, just a terrible headspace to live in until you can forgive yourself. 400 people is uh, yeah. that's a heavy weight to carry. When, when you're the CEO, you carry that all the time. Well, I think that was the most powerful part of the, the daily episode when that um, uh, woman who lost a loved one in a crash was just like, go back to Iowa. Because he kept talking about how he was an Iowa farm boy. Yeah, Iowa. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Go back to Iowa. But he's probably not even welcome there anymore. So maybe Idaho is a, a better option there for him. Pick, uh, pick some I state and disappear. That's what I would do. Yeah. Sure. So I think we can agree the minimum is like you shouldn't, you shouldn't kill people that use your products. But then <laughs> – if we, if we, so maybe it's a, a bit of a jump. Maybe that's more corporate ethics and corporate social responsibility. But um, in terms of what good a company can do, so there's the whole do do no harm piece. But then, what good should they do? And this is something that's become a lot more popular lately, um, and it's known as corporate social responsibility. Which uh, how how would you define? that jay or what do you feel like are some of the components of that because i got i got a wikipedia uh, definition here to go but like why don't you let me kind of <laughs> know want, what you, you want to yeah. me on it thanks kelsey uh <laughs> yeah corporate uh, social responsibility or corporate responsibility you know gosh it's it uh, i've been pretty lucky because the folks that have mentored and grown me over the years uh were had a very broad definition of that and that involved the community it involved shareholders and it involves employees um, so you really have to think outside of just profits. Um, you have to think outside of just your employees and profits. You also have to look at your impact on the world around you and, and uh, um, the community in which you live, no matter who you are in the company. So to me, it is balancing, balancing finite resources in a company to make sure that you're doing the right things according to um, that schedule of ethics. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, I have felt the pressure of the sort of um, shareholder value stuff, right? Uh, that tends to lean heavier than any other, uh, any other um, measure for sure. Um, some of that's helpful evolution of a company and growth. Some of that is dangerous and rough sometimes. And I've seen it in lots of companies, um, but you're always trying to balance spending money on and spending resources on, um, different aspects of the position and privilege you've been giving as a company that pays people money, pays for their kids' education, pays for their mortgage, um, is involved in the community, gives money, sponsors events, um, helps sometimes take on projects to clean up land, which I've seen done. Um, all those things tie into where you spend the money. But in the end, the people that own the company or the shareholders in a publicly traded company too are the ones that really get to speak. And that's where you see profits over people happen so much. Yeah, it does seem to be a pretty broad term. Um, all the things that you talked about are basically in my definition. So you get an A plus for your answer. Um, Very good. I'm excited uh, one thing that. that I feel like is not in the definition through Wikipedia uh, is kind of just the, the general course of business and, and what good that does in terms of like your supply chain. Um, Right. And who, who you're doing business with and what type of companies and where you're sourcing your products from. So it's, you know, it's not just social, it's also environmental. And, but this definitely has become a trend. Um, 
85% of the companies in the S&P 500 index uh, published corporate social responsibility reports in 2017, 85% of them. Mm -hmm. And in 2011, that was just under 20%. And, yeah, and I, and I wonder sometimes how much, because that is done and I'll, there's a press release I want to talk about a while ago here, but sometimes there are companies that do these social projects and they, they hire a PR firm to cover the social project, right? So mm. they say, uh, you know, um, and I see it all the time, you know, companies say, look, so many people in our company volunteer to do this work. Um, we have volunteer time off. Um, we were involved with Habitat for Humanity and they make a press release about it. Now, it's not a bad thing that they do it. It's a good thing, right? They're encouraging employees to be service oriented and serve back, help the community and help uh, charitable organizations. At the same time, they're, they're promoting the brand still. So mm. let's not get too crazy about it, right? You're taking some small percentage of your total profits and saying, um, hey, we give back. All right. Yeah. Well, not giving back very much, but it's a more of a press uh, public relations thing, I think, than anything for, for a lot. Well, especially a report. I mean, a report is like a public facing thing. Yes. It's not like they're, you know, necessarily, um, you know, who knows what's the content of those reports are in terms of the percent that they gave or how much volunteering or their, their mission of their CSR. Um, so who knows what's actually in those reports. But I think that yeah. what one thing it does show is that that trend in, in the course of six years, 60% or 40 you know, there's been a 60% increase in the amount of companies that are producing these reports. So it mm -hmm. has definitely increased um, the conversation. And yeah, you know, there's a lot. Well, and, and yeah, and I don't want to be too cynical. I mean, um, I'll say the same thing about corporations that I say about government is um, they don't always do the best things. They don't always do the right things. Um, but when you look at the size of the, the corporate world in the United States, at least, because that is our primary driver, it feels like, um, just like government, they have a huge capability, um, potential to do good, right? Yeah. They're so big and so mad. If you look at just Salesforce alone, which is almost in every city I'm in, I start to see towers going wow. up that have Salesforce on them. Um, they make a ton, ton, unbelievable amount of cash, right? Like Apple, their, their banks are just sitting there with stacks of cash. It's like Gringotts, right? I mean, it's just, there's a lot of it. <laughs> so how much are they doing? What's it for? Um, they have the potential to really be a, have a positive impact. Now, they also have a positive impact because they're paying people. So we can think about that too, right? I mean, it's giving people jobs. It's helping people advance. It's, um, you know, helping the economy. And however you judge that, that is one portion of what they do. But they do have the capability and potential to really do a lot of good because of their impact in each of the cities they're in. Yeah, with more opportunity comes that more responsibility. Right. Um, you know, I always think too of this, of, you know, of, of like of someone like Bill Gates, who now is kind of the poster boy of what a billionaire should do with their money. Yeah. Um, but on that climb, how much... And I don't, I don't necessarily know, but how much ethics and responsibility um, were baked into their company, and how much were yeah. they giving back? And or if you just wait till maybe we've even talked about this before. If you wait till the very, if you make just a, let's just make crap tons of money, regardless of how we make it, and at the end, 
we'll we'll give it away. It's kind of like um, retirement. We'll wait till we have lots of money, and then we'll go and travel and do all the things we want to do. Oh, we yeah. I died. We didn't get to do yeah. that. You know, it's like, right. are you ever? Do you ever get to the point where you can actually then give back, or do you just keep on building up that nest egg that someday we will make use of this and make it a yeah. positive impact? That's something. Yeah, that that's a really. That's a really interesting intellectual study that needs to be done, but let's pretend for a minute. Now, there is the whole um, capitalist side of the more rewards you allow people to have because they've built something like Bill Gates, and he and the guys that became billionaires off of that, um, men and women both, um, they, they built something new and changed computers, PCs, home solutions, business solutions forever. So that, that, that moved forward. They did it on their own and they, they made a lot of money. Now you could also look at the other side of that and say, okay, what if all those million, what if there weren't millionaires in that organization? In other words, if they just spread the salaries out broad enough that you had, you know, a hundred times the people making a lot more money, the, this is what you were going to is the questions and decisions they made along the way. I'm not saying they were irresponsible, but what if you did spread that money out? What if you flattened out the salary structure so much? What would that impact have been so that Bill Gates wasn't a billionaire at the end? Mm -hmm. um, those are the types of decisions along the way. How much do you pay people and how much do you concentrate on stock value? And those two things oftentimes do not go together at all. Yeah. Unless you break the, like the Boeing CEO, huh? He, I forget how much money they said he was making a year. I mean, it was, it was, it was a lot. Yeah. I don't know if it was tens of millions or hundred million or something like that. But what if he didn't make that much? Would the company be able to recruit somebody as good as he is? Um, I don't know, mm -hmm. but that's where the along the way decision gets to be really interesting. Yeah. So he made twenty three million dollars a year. Boeing C was paid twenty three million dollars. Uh, Dennis Muhlenberg is that his name? Yeah. So how long have you been an author? Uh, uh, long enough to make $23 million. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, my first book came out in 2007. Okay, 2007. So let's pretend 12 years at $23 million a year. I can't do math. That's a shit ton of money, though. I can tell you that. That is a lot of money, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but then, you know, I th our, our example with Bill Gates and... Um, some of those, you know, Tim Cook or Steve Jobs. So I would think, okay, well, where does the raw material for their products come from? Okay, it comes from the Congo and it comes from these mines where these heavy metals are mined that sometimes are owned by warlords that fuel uh, gun trade and child soldiers. And okay, now where are those parts shipped to and then where are they constructed into a phone? Okay, they're constructed into a phone at the factory in China, the Foxconn factory, which um, there was a, uh, you know, so many people that were getting overstressed working in that factory or something led to this where they were jumping off the top of the factory to their death. So they, they put up, I guess, their type of social responsibility at this factory, which is not owned by Apple or Microsoft. It was owned by Foxconn. They put up nets to catch people. So if they were trying to kill themselves, they wouldn't succeed. They would just be caught in these nets. Yeah, so like, crazy. you know, all, so that wealth and to some extent was 
built on the backs of these conditions and these people as well. And so to me, the part of the corporate social responsibility is the ethics in which you build your business around. I, I don't have any solutions. I'm talking to you right now. Uh, we're talking through Zoom. I don't know who owns Zoom on computers, probably built in that Foxconn factory. So like mm -hmm. I'm hypocritical in all of this as well. I mean, I love the products. I cannot live without the, I can't do the job I do without the products that are produced from these metals in these factories. Uh, so I'm, I'm not really, you know, can't, it's hard for me to really wag my finger and not be a hypocrite about it. Um, right. But I think that's all part of it as well. Which, which yeah, kind of, sure which, which kind of gets me to, I had an experience actually in China where in my very first, uh, I was on the journey that would become my first book, Where Am I Wearing? And I followed my flip-flops to China to show up at the factory where my shoes were made. And I spent some time there. I, I was outside the factory. I met uh, Duan and Zuchun, a husband and wife who moved from the countryside to the city, which is quite common. And their, their son, who was I think 13 at the time, was back in their home village being raised by, their, by Duan's father. And they made, I forget what they made a, a month, like $300 a month, which was quite a lot more than many other people I met in the garment industry. But they also worked a lot more. They worked 100 hours per week. There's Chinese labor laws that were in place to ensure that that didn't happen, but they weren't enforced whatsoever. So I showed up to try to get a tour of this factory and I had an experience talking with someone that was at the corporation um, that made my flip-flops. And the corporation was Decker Shoes. Um, my flip-flops were Teva. And um, I got into the factory. I talked my way into the factory somehow, and I just got put in like a boardroom and talked to. I never saw the factory floor. And then the kind I got kind of funneled into the court, the country manager's office. And then I had a phone call with a guy named Pat Devaney, who was sitting in his office in Santa Barbara, California, um, talking to me, some dude that just showed up, uh, some 26 year old guy who just showed up at his factory. And uh, so I have Jay, I don't, this could be completely cheesy. I've sent you a script of our call you're going to be pat um and i'm going to be me or maybe we should flip roles i don't know what do you want to be do you want to be no i i think i think pat fits me i i daniel day lewis is a uh, a hero of mine what a great actor <laughs> i'm going to play daniel day lewis playing pat devaney that is uh next level so here's a dramatic recreation of an experience i had in China, so I kind of set the scene, Duan Zuchun, I had been spent some time with them. I kind of got into the factory, and then I kind of got pushed outside the factory, went to a separate office, from at, sitting in the office of the country manager, and then I get a phone call, um, and it's Pat Devaney in Santa Barbara, California. So, uh, Jay, go ahead and begin scene. Daniel Day-Lewis, Jay, as Daniel Day-Lewis, as Pat Devaney. Pat. Okay, you ready? Yep. All right, here we go. You visited the factory? Who gave you the address? Your Teva office did. I called them last week, and, and the guy who answered the phone asked his manager, and they gave it to me. Give me a name. I, I don't know his name. I've talked to no less than eight people at Teva and Deckers in the last week. 
No one would give out that information. It's not supposed to be public. Well, they gave it to me. The other companies I've been working with have their factory's addresses public. I don't see why visiting the factory is such a big deal. That's, uh, that is the dumbest thing I've heard all day. Not caring if some tourist shows up at a factory. Gosh, we don't cater to tourists. We don't make our factory's info public. I'm not a tourist. End scene. That was great. Oh, I, it was hard yeah. not, when I said, give me a name, it's hard not to play Batman there. Where's Rachel? That's what I wanted to say. <laughs> give me a name. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that we have, I don't know if there's Emmys for audio on podcasts, but. Well, we're a shoe in. We we're won. up there. So, yeah, um, yeah he ended in, uh, with, you know, calling me a tourist and that really stunned He called you a tourist. Yeah. Because. You know, on vacation, I guess. So Annie and I got engaged. You know my lovely wife, Annie, who's a ninja. I do assassin. know her. And so she, yes. um, we got engaged, and then I went on this three-month trip that I didn't know would become a book or not, and I paid for it on our second mortgage. So super responsible. And so for him to just kind of call me a tourist as if I was having like this enjoyable time around the world, and it was really interesting, just really, really stung because there was probably um, some truth in that I was hoping that's not what I was doing. I was hoping there was some more meaning to what I was doing and there ended up being a meaning more behind right. it because I was able to share these experiences. But you know, that really, that really stung. And so, um, so I talked with Pat and it didn't, and a guy, I mean, I'm super honest here. Like someone did give me the address of the factory. His name was Bryce, I believe. Um, hmm. And it's been funny through the years, I've had a chance to meet people who were working at, Decker's, uh, they were in that office with Pat Devaney when I was in China, and they remembered some dude showing up at the factory, and I and I was that dude, um, <laughs> and just kind of how chaotic and ridiculous it, it all was. They're like you're the guy, yeah, <laughs> that was me. So you, you know, years later, I uh, where my wearing came out, and I had a chance to update it. And I was working on the update and I was uh, out in California, somewhat near Santa Barbara. So I thought I would just go and drop off a copy of the book for Mr. Pat Devaney. And so I show up, I show up at the office to drop a book off for Pat, hoping I'd get to meet him because it would be even more awkward, I guess. And he no longer worked there. Um, so he probably got no. fired. No, I don't That's think it's a he, let down. He probably got a job somewhere else, but Dropping off that book that did lead to um, months, not probably a couple of weeks later, I did get a phone call from them, uh, from Deckers. And uh, now they had someone who was actually in charge of their corporate social responsibility. So Pat mm -hmm. was in charge of, he was their sourcing guy. He was like their oh. global source. They had no corporate social responsibility. So that was in 2007. And then later, it's probably 2011, 2012. Then I had a great conversation with the guy who was a corporate social responsibility, kind of talking about these things, thinking about them more. So I don't know if I had any part in helping push them towards having someone actually thinking about where their products come from and who they come from. Um, but there's just definitely been this movement of this being something that's more important mm -hmm. to companies. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's uh it's just probably been an evolution for them specifically to, to have that part of, and you have to, it's classic 
corporate world is you have to articulate something in writing for it to become a priority. So we're going to maximize the profits. We're going to, you know, um, be good stewards of our vendors. We're going to, um, you know, expand and grow a bit this percentage. And we're going to have ethics through our corporate responsibility program. You have to put it in a list like that for it to become important. Um, and you often can see the difference between companies sometimes in meetings and other places where those things aren't brought up. You can just, you see it through its absence. Um, and that's, that's you probably witnessed it change over that period of time. One of the things that was really frustrating for me too was like Teva was scored pretty high in many the the ethics of companies, but especially then it was more centered around environmental. So they use like env- mm-hmm. it's environment responsibly sourced rubber in their shoes, and so they would market these shoes based on their ethics, and they would kind of get reward from that in terms of their brand based on right. how they were treating the environment. But there was there was like almost no conversation about the people who produce their products at that time. And there has been some evolution on that now for a lot of companies. And I honestly don't know where Decker stands now on, on these things. Yeah. Yeah. But that's, we, I mean, we talk about this with other companies and, you know, I can remember our Starbucks episode, but that's where people trying to be, a, uh, trying to be good people, they'll go buy those shoes saying, oh, they, they're ethically sourced this and they're, they, you know, they, they do well with the populations they work with. And, uh, you know, all, all those things we lightly try to judge before we buy a pair of sandals. So you try to be a good person and pick the right one, but you don't know what's really going on mm-hmm. most of the time. Yeah. yeah. And now some of this uh, CSR, corporate responsibility, is actually being dictated by law. In some places, and um, I, I don't know if that's anywhere in the United States. You know, of anywhere, any city, and so to me, it's. Yeah. It would be it would be more likely in California, uh, West Coast type of thing. So I think it's, I don't know. It's happening more in other countries, and when I was in India and I was talking to Gandhi's great grandson Tushar, he had some opinions about this because in 2013, India became the very first country in the world. Uh, to have a law that, um, and here, I actually write it down because it's so confusing. So companies with net profits of $830,000 or more over the previous three years had to give 2% of their net profits to causes promoting education, health, sustainability, gender equality, and poverty reduction. And yeah, I don't, I don't know. I've never, I've not heard of that. Now that it, people may be doing it and broadcasting it. Like we talked earlier, putting it in a press release. Hey, we're donating, right? You see that sometimes, but um, I can imagine, especially at the federal level, if something like that, let's say Elizabeth Warren or Bernie or somebody else comes up with that during this election process, people would lose their minds. I could hear, I could hear, my Republican friends freaking out about control of corporations by the government. Um, that sounds very European does not sound very American to me. Mm. Um, not but, that I have a problem with it. It's just, I don't know of it existing here. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause like, uh, you know, to some extent, so we talk about Elizabeth Warren talks about raising taxes to do, you know, many promoting education, health, sustainability, gender equality. Like that's how the government uh, implements our taxes to some extent. So is this a is this almost a better alternative in the eyes of 
a libertarian or someone who's more conservative, mm -hmm. because then at least they can choose how, what that money goes to. Yeah. That's, that would be interesting. Yeah. Instead of raising your taxes 2% so you can give it, and that's the big, that's the big fight back, right? It's, I'm, I'm, I'm paying 2% more in corporate taxes and it's going to the government, which I think is the most, I'm speaking for people, but yeah. um, is the most wasteful way to spend money on education. So, okay, well then you have to take 2% and you have to give it to a, you know, a, a IRS classified charity that is focused on education. There you go. Now you do it. Mm -hmm. That would be an interesting angle. Maybe you ought to run for president. Yeah, there you go. On this platform, the giving platform. So, Jay, I appreciate your endorsement for president. Would you like to be my vice president? Uh, I'll think about it. Okay. All right. Uh, we'll run on, <laughs> on the giving plan. We want everyone to give more of their money away. We're not going to raise taxes. We're just going to put you in jail if you don't give a certain percent of your income away. Yeah. Think? See, that's when I mean, I'd consider it. I have to think about these things that you're bringing up. <laughs> oh, I, well, I probably wouldn't be jail. I'd probably just a penalty. We'll just penalize right. you if you don't give money away. Anyhow, so I need to I need we need to work the platform a little bit. So, but yeah. um, funny enough, uh, you know, Gandhi's great grandson Tushar was was against this uh, mandated giving, and so here's what he had to say um, that. Here's his exact quote. So that the ideology of giving until it hurts has been completely killed by this sense of giving as much as, as is required, even when you have the ability to do more. This has actually harmed the cause of benevolence. Hmm. So I get what he's saying, that there's kind of this, this – it holds you to kind of like this minimum that you should give. And some companies gave less when they were mandated to give. But overall, giving went up. Um, now, you know, I think it kind of depends on how you feel about government versus taxes versus mandated giving. Um, right. but it seems like the mandated giving would be a much more scattershot type of giving unless someone, unless the government identified what type of organizations you could give to. But what if everyone chose puppies? Right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I think there does need to be some common direction and some kind of thought out of um, this is an issue we need to tackle in this sort of, sort of way. But I don't know. Gandhi was against it. Yeah. He had some yeah. great quotes too. Like, you know, a lot of these people, and this is an exact quote, I don't have this down, but he said that how, you know, you have these people in dressed in suits, sitting in the fancy hotel bar, making decisions about where they're going to give money away. And he's like, how do they know how to fight poverty when they haven't even smelled poverty when they have, which is, which is his, that's his quote. I'm not saying that, but hmm. he said, they haven't smelled poverty, haven't touched poverty, haven't seen poverty. Like they have real, hmm. no experience in this area. So now you're going to have them be the ones that decide where the funds should go. So hmm. that was kind of his take. Yeah. So where would he put it? How would he, how would he manage that? that responsibility do you know i don't know what he thinks is a good alternative like i said giving did go up in india because of this mandated um this kind of law that forced giving um so i mean it's you know hmm. he, he would just say you need to give 
more you need to give until it hurts and for me as i was like in pursuit of the good person equation for where am i giving it kind of opened me up this idea of it's not about the least that we should give it's about the most that we should give with the gifts that we have been given so like that's the so i i don't know how he feels like well then how should they give i i he's okay with corporations giving but maybe it just not being mandated and right right a lot of larger companies actually have it would be fun to have someone on sometime who is in charge of those giving decisions and how do they choose where to give their corporate gifts mm-hmm. yeah a very very charitable org organization yeah we ought to think about that and then you know we also have connections into um community foundation and some of those other charitable investment groups that we could talk to because that all ties together would be an interesting yeah, or, things. or do what uh, Bill Gates did to some or Warren Buffett did. He he gave all of his money basically to Bill Gates and said, "Hey, you do it." Yeah, like you just. Well, you let's decide. if we get the two of them on, that'd be great. I'll make some phone calls. All right. Um, and so then I kind of wrap up with just uh, a little bit of some companies that I feel that, that I've seen through the years that are kind of um, kind of have this uh, corporate social responsibility baked into them or have done fantastic jobs. And these are ones I've directly interacted with in the past so one is we may have even talked i don't know if we had a chocolate episode yet but uh made cost chocolate where it's bean to bar produced in um in uh madagascar so 85 percent of the value of that chocolate bar stays in the country and it's drastically improving the lives of it's a small company so the few farmers who support them as opposed to um you know it's uh, as opposed to all those profits going to companies elsewhere. So I think that's a really cool one. Yeah. So can I, can I break in with that? Oh one? yeah. It, yep. it would, interesting. Based on our earlier conversation about how you get there along the way that just, just, I'm just saying on the surface and this is kind of hypothetical, but that company could grow. If it has some real opportunity to grow and it has a, it has a, a good story to tell financially and from a product perspective, it could go gather money from other places. Um, get investors, shareholders, get 10 times its size. Now, where's all that money going to go? Right. Yeah. So I don't know what the, you'd have to do a financial study on both those alternatives, but you're saying most of the money staying in country, you could have lots of the money go out of the country. The question is, would that investment, who would that investment benefit? And then how much would actually stay in that new or that new corporate structure? Mm -hmm. That's an interesting one because they have, they are limiting themselves in terms of size, but they may be better serving their community as they are. Yeah. Well, the, I, there's the whole question too of, well, if you have to are beholden to shareholders, like legally beholden to shareholders, can mm-hmm. you make those decisions? Like it's, it's, it's an advantage of being small. Yeah. In this, right. like it's easier for, sure. for them to be small. And if they became the size of Hershey's, how much more of a challenge would that be? for Mm -hmm. them to do what's right. Yeah. What's your Uh, real goal? Right. I just want to raise that. That's, it's an interesting look at what, what they would be and what would their benefit be to the the people around them? Yeah. Uh, Another one that I've had experience with is uh, the village experience. It's a travel. Oh, I want to say travel agent. They travel tour group slash. They have some kind of fair trade ish goods uh, where they work with artisans around the world and they lead trips around the world. And they, in their trips, they have um, 
they they work with they visit area NGOs um, and they get to learn about their work and maybe participate in some type of um, project or witness some type of project. Um, mm. But these are, they're working with organizations that are on the ground and the village experience often has long